Hello everyone, welcome to the episode 88 of Soul You Saturday. The guest we have today, Carol Orange, has worked in the art world for more than 20 years. She began as a research editor on art books in London and later became an art dealer in Boston. She has an MBA from Simmons University and worked as a marketing manager at the Polaroid Corporation, along with concert pianist Virginia Eskin, who played Chopin's music, she read excerpts from George Sand's novels in three salons at the French Library in Boston. Her short story, Delicious Dates, was included in Warren Elder's 2010 short story anthology. Another story, Close Call, appeared in the Atherton Review, Volume 02, a recent article Seven Great Haste Novels Recommended by an Art Dealer was published in Crime Reads. Her debut novel, A Discerning Eye, takes off from the world's largest unsolved art theft at Boston's Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum. The novel was published by Kevin Breach Press on October 13, 2020. An audiobook is narrated by actors Campbell Scott and Kathleen McElfresh. Her author website is www.carolorange.com. So please do visit and learn more about her. And I can't wait to listen more from her. So let's just welcome her and hear more about her career journey. How did she find her area of interest and managing to lead that? Hey, hi, Carol. Very happy to have you on the show and really appreciate all your time and consideration being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Leisha, for having me on your show. It's a pleasure to be here today. Yeah, thank you so much. It's my honor as well. So to begin with, we have like a general segment about passion or the interest. So how did you find your interest in this particular field and what motivates you to be there where you are today? Okay, well, I um, was an undergraduate at Cornell University. And I studied, I majored in both um, English literature and art history. So that was the beginning of my passion with both writing and also art history. Um, after I graduated from Cornell, I was very fortunate to have this wonderful job in London on art books. I was a research editor of a book on Spanish art. And my um, advisor was named Senor Xavier de Salas. He was at the consulate, the Spanish consulate in London. And he later became the director of the Prado Museum so I was so lucky to work with Xavier de Salas because he just made me even more passionate about art. I learned so much from him. Yep, yep, yep. So that makes sense as well, right? Sometimes you find some teacher or the mentor along the side who can help you and make you more passionate about the field. So interest starts with kind of a mentor, so the teachers you come across. And that is a very valid point and thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, moving towards our next segment, which is moreover about questions from the audience. And we have a couple of questions shortlisted for you. 
the first question that we have is what are common traps for aspiring writers what are common traps traps for aspiring writers oh yes advice oh for aspiring writers oh my goodness yes um i have lots of advice i think the most important thing is to try to get good critical feedback and that means not from a relative <laughs> that means from experts okay. and it's really hard to get good critical feedback but it's so important because without it you're, you're really lost in the dark um i read this wonderful piece by rick moody on revision and i think writing is revision 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 but what do you revise um you know you you have to get into that feedback loop mm -hmm. so that's definitely one tip for aspiring writers the other is to be patient. Um, <laughs> writing a novel takes a really long time. And very often um, when I went back to some earlier versions of chapters, I could see some of the mistakes that I made. So, um, you know, it's both getting external feedback, but developing that internal editor requires requires patience mm -hmm. and um i think another thing another tip for aspiring writers is to be a part of a community of writers mm -hmm. um, i've been in the same writing group in new york new york society library now for seven years and um, to have the support as well as the good critical feedback mm -hmm. from my fellow writers is just so important. I mean, support is, you know, you can, there are some days when the writing works for you and there are other days when you're banging your head against the wall. So having um, this community of writers to help you through some of the darker times is really important, but also to get their praise when you get it right. It's so mm -hmm. reinforcing. Yep, yep. And it is a lot more creative field as well. So it's, as you mentioned, right, some days are good and some days are bad. So yeah, definitely need, you need that kind of a community support around you. So thank right. you for sharing. And those are really very important three tips that you shared with aspiring writers and hope that answers the audience questions as well. One more question that we have is, how did you come up with Portia Maratesa's decision to analyze the stolen art of or art for underlying themes? Oh, okay. So, um, Portia Malatesta um, I've always admired Italians. I'm not Italian myself, but I'm an honorary Italian. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I have lots of Italian friends. Uh -huh. So she is an Italian-American art dealer. And, um, you know, everything, she was devastated 
by the robbery at the Gardner Museum. And she was a docent there, as well as being an art dealer. And it's also where she used to go with her younger brother, Antonio, to look at especially Vermeer's concert. So it would make sense that an art dealer would look at the art that's been stolen and analyze the art. Um, it, unfortunately, the FBI never did that. They never looked at why the 13 uh, wonderful art objects that were stolen were the ones when there's, you know, like 200 works of outstanding art at the Isabella Gardner Museum. In fact, um, uh, Isabella was initially taught about Italian Renaissance art by Bernard Berenson, who was the leading uh, expert at the time. So the Italian Renaissance paintings at the Gardner Museum are amazing. They're breathtaking. You know, Titian's Rape of Europa, Botticelli, um, you know, all the famous Italian Renaissance masters, and they were not touched. So, you know, Portia looks at the Vermeers, the Rembrandts, the Degas, and the Manet, and analyzes the underlying theme in all of the paintings. And it would only be an art historian who would think about doing this. And she comes up with a psychological profile of the thief based on the underlying theme of all of these wonderful works of art. And the underlying theme is the tension between dark and light, what the Italians call chiaroscura. But in fact, all of them have that. And so it's like, why did the mastermind who organized the theft um, choose these particular paintings to steal when there were even more valuable pieces in the Italian rooms? It is hard actually to praise everything that you know uh, you write, but uh, you were quite good at actually explaining as well. So thank you so much. Uh, next segment that we have is moreover like a fun segment or the relaxation segment, where I'm going to give you like a three keywords which are moreover associated with your profile or the career, and you have to just tell me whatever comes to your mind when you hear those words. It can be a replacement keyword, it can be an abstract definition, or after hearing all those three, uh, if you want to sum up with something more creative, you, you can do that as well. So we are welcome to hear more from you on your <laughs> profile. So are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> so the first keyword that you have is author. Author, okay. The first author that comes to mind is Kate Atkinson. She's a British author. She writes mysteries, but they're 
they're really wonderful. You get to know her characters really well. Her first novel, uh, Behind the Scenes of the Museum, <laughs> of course, appealed to me since I'm crazy about art, but she is um, just a fabulous author and I really admire her a lot. And the second keyword that we have is artist. The artist that immediately comes to mind is Picasso. And it's not just Pablo Picasso is almost a household word. I mean, he's very famous. But um, I've been to the Picasso Museum in Paris. And what is extraordinary about Picasso, he led a long life. He lived till his 90s. And he just never stopped reinventing himself. He wasn't always an abstract artist, an abstract painter. He started out um, doing representational painting. Then he became abstract. Then he worked in collage. Um, and, you know, he didn't just do paintings, he worked in collage. He also is a sculptor. And then he also does these just amazingly beautiful pottery. Um, you know, he had a place in the south of France where he did pottery. So he was always reinventing himself in terms of his art. And um, you can see at the Picasso Museum in Paris, uh, some of his influences. He was influenced a lot by African art that you can see in his famous paintings uh, in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. So Picasso, when I, I mean, he's the quintessential artist in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. And the third word that we have is editor. Editor, okay. Well, um, I think about Maxwell Perkins, who was the editor of Hemingway and also F. Scott Fitzgerald, as well as Thomas Wolfe. Um, I think maybe Thomas Wolfe never would have been uh, a well-known American writer. You know, his most famous book, You Can't Go Home Again if it hadn't been for Maxwell Perkins, because it was um, Thomas Wolfe sent in this unwieldy, like thousand more, thousand page manuscript and Maxwell Perkins helped him put it together, helped him delete what was redundant. He helped him organize it. And, you know, so, there's this masterpiece by Thomas Wolfe called You Can't Go Home Again. But if it hadn't been for the editor, Maxwell Perkins, who was a line by line editor, as well as a developmental editor, you know, it never would have happened. And it does make you wonder about, I know more about what he did for Thomas Wolfe than um, for his work with F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway. So there are not many <laughs> editors left 
who actually do line by line editing. Probably another one is Nan Talese, uh -huh. um, and she edited Pat Conroy. And I've actually heard Pat Conroy speak about her. Um, and he speaks glowingly <laughs> um, because um, he says that it's the collaboration between himself as a writer and the editor, Nantalee, that helped him write really magnificent novels like The Prince of that, which is one of my favorite favorite novels. That's great, actually. And you know, the way you came up with like the names of the people, when you think about those keywords, it is something that, you know, shows your passion as well. Because whenever you are passionate about something, you admire others' work a lot, and you are always getting inspired. You are always getting inspired by their work as well, along with following your passions. So thank you so much for sharing. And uh, it was quite a fun to listen, as well as, you know, getting to know more of uh, people who are doing great in that space as well. So thank you so much. And uh, moving towards our next segment is more or about little more exploring your career work or volunteering. And we have one question under that segment. So you have represented many artists who are your favorites and or any particular artwork that you always look forward to see. Yes, thank you for that question, Leisha. Um, it's a question I love to answer. Um, my favorite artists are um, Velasquez, who I learned so much about when I was the research editor on the Book of Spanish Art. Um, I didn't realize how extraordinarily creative he was, and daring, especially for his time. He was a court painter, and the court, the Spanish court, of course, only wanted flattering uh, imagery of themselves. But his masterpiece, Las Meninas, which translate into the Maids of Honor, is at the Prada Museum. And you can study that painting and learn all about the court. Um, I mean, there is the Infanta Maria Teresa, who's a little girl, all dressed up, and she's surrounded by her maids of honor. There's also a dwarf in the painting, and there's also a mastiff, a, a dog, and a naughty little boy with his foot on the mastiff, showing you know, the humor that Velasquez um, had. And then her, um, her parents are in the background, way, way in the back. And you, you know, so you have this three-dimensionality in this portrait of the Infanta Maria Teresa and her court. Her parents are in the back, and then Velasquez put himself in the painting showing you know himself with his easel and his paintbrush and you know you you could spend a long time analyzing all that's going on for this poor little girl who was you know going to become a queen someday so velasquez is definitely one of my favorite 
painters. Um, I love John Singer Sargent, and so did Isabella Stewart Gardner. Uh -huh. And that's another artist who, thank goodness, was not touched by the thieves. Um, the um, painting of in the courtyard at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum by Sargent is of, ironically, <laughs> the Spanish flamenco. It's called El Jaleo, and it is just simply magnificent. You look at it and, and you can hear the music of the flamenco dancers and it's, it's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. yeah. He also did a portrait of Isabella uh -huh. as well as the infamous Madame X, which is in the Metropolitan Museum. Mm -hmm. And the portrait of Isabella, you know, she's wearing, um, a strapless dress. No, it has little, um, you know, it has little things going up here just to hold it up. But at the time that he painted this, because you know she 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 had bare arms and you know it was from her chest up, it was considered racy <laughs> at the time. So. Um, her husband, Isabella's husband, um, Jack Gardner, you know, would, wouldn't let her show it. Um, at, but it is now in the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. And, you know, I think, again, Sargent is really a portrait painter, but he dared to show people as they really are. Mm -hmm. And then um, I love Vermeer. <laughs> Um, you know, that that is the painting that was stolen that really breaks my heart because there are only 36 Vermeers in the world. And Isabella bought that painting in Paris in 1906 at a time when Vermeer was not very well known. But she, on her own, without the help of Bernard Berenson, decided she really wanted this painting. It was at an auction house in Paris. Okay. So Vermeer's The Concert is also a very mysterious painting because there are three people in it and the lute player, we only see his back. And the two women, there's a woman at the harpsichord on the left and a woman on the right, who is either singing or leading this, you know, trio of musicians. But because we don't see the face mm -hmm. of the lute player, we are drawn more intimately into this painting. And Vermeer actually was a genius because as one of his biographers has said, this is not my idea, it was someone else's, but I think it's so incredible. He really hardly left his hometown of Delft. Uh -huh. He mainly painted in his own home. <laughs> he, he did not go to Italy like many artists mm -hmm. in the 17th century. Um, and yet he created these intimate 
scenes that are are just so um, mysterious and exquisitely done. You know, his he was a master of light, oh. and this goes into the theme that Portia analyzed. So the light comes in from an unseen window and it falls on the floor and it it also is on the folds of the um, uh, woman at the harpsichord, her dress. And so you have this tension of the light and the dark in just about all the Vermeers in the world. And as I said, there are very few, there are only 36. So his work, is no one has ever painted the way Vermeer has. Um, it's such a distinct style and um, it's magnificent. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, definitely I can see that, you know, uh, coming from you is something that, because you are the art and the writing as well. So uh, that is truly like, you know, something that people can look forward to hear more because it is more insightful when you hear from the artist about the other artists. So thank you so much for sharing. And we have one more segment, which is more about tips or advice. And you can support your answer with books or courses here. So as you are an artist as well as the fiction writer, so what kind of a advice or the tip you would like to give to the students or the professionals are looking to get into this field or looking as their long-term career option? Oh, okay. Um, so, all right. Um, you're, you're asking me um, about how I used my expertise as an editor of art books. Yep, Is yep. that, yes. Um, how you can, uh, how, what kind of advice you can give to the students, like, you know, who wants to get into this field, like, you know, well, I think um, um, in the art world, you know, it's all about curation. And so, you know, when I was a research editor, we didn't put up in the book every single painting or drawing that the artists had done. We had to curate and be selective about what you put in. And so, learning, you know, how to be a curator in terms of the art books. And I also did that when I had my own gallery in Boston, you know, I, I would curate, I would be selective about which paintings of artists to show and which paintings not to show. So the same thing is true in writing because, you know, I did a lot, a lot of research for this novel. And I certainly didn't include the research in the novel, but it gave me the ability to write about something, to select, to curate what I had researched and select certain um, ideas that I could put in the book. For example, um, one of the suspects uh, for the um, tragedy um, at the Gardner, the theft, was um, a mafia guy in Boston named Whitey Bulger. Yeah. 
and he, you know he's unfortunately not alive anymore but um, I had done a lot of research on him why was Whitey Bulger uh, running uh, one of the mafias in Boston when his brother became the president of the universe Ray Bulger he became the president of the University of Massachusetts and you know so here are two brothers and one is super successful in you know in in a certain um in an acceptable life and one is super successful in um you know an underground world and you know what why was there such a big difference um i wondered and also whitey bulger you know was an informant for the FBI. And the FBI would not have chosen him as an informant because he helped them, um, he helped them deal with this really scary, horrible cocaine trade um, in Boston that was mafia run. And, you know, they're very careful who they pick as an informant. And if he had been the person who was behind the robbery, you know, the FBI would never have risked um, making him an informant. So I didn't put that whole story in my book because it wasn't really, you know, relevant to, to the plot. But knowing all of that, going in depth in terms of that research, I selected you know, just a small sentence or two about Whitey Bulger, because <laughs> he, he is, um, you know, or he was uh, certainly well known. Mm -hmm. yep, yep. Thank you so much for sharing, and hopefully that helps the students as well they're trying to make this career path. Moving towards our closure segment, which is more about the leadership and the way you are talking, it totally shows your passion towards your area of interest. So what is your leadership style and any specific leader that you always follow or admire and why? Oh, thank you for that question, Leisha. Um, that is, um, I love that question because I did work before um, I had my own gallery. I did work in, for corporations. I, I have an MBA and I did study yeah. leadership um, as well as see it. So the leadership style that I like is facilitative, where, you know, where it's getting information from the ground up and, um, you know, not from the top down, not an authoritative kind of leadership style. Um, I worked uh, for the Polaroid Corporation and also for a big computer company in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. uh, digital equipment. And, you know, uh, Ken Olson, who was the CEO of digital, was very facilitative. In fact, he made sure that all the managers from beginning, you know, beginning at age like 28, there were some really young, talented managers to more seasoned executives. Everyone had to take a course in leadership. 
And so, you know, he was facilitative by example. And I could see that's why there was such incredible company loyalty. And that's why in their heyday, they became the number two computer company. You know, they, they, what they, what he didn't <laughs> succeed at is he didn't foresee the, you know, Apple and Dell computer and, you know, the, the PCs and the uh, personal computers. He didn't see that it would be, you know, that computing would end up being in on your laptop so that you and I could talk today. So I do think facilitative leaders, I admire Gandhi enormously. Um, I admire Martin Luther King, you know, I think these are the great leaders who have really made extraordinary changes in society, not just corporations. And I also admire just to have a woman in there because I was thinking about, you know, which woman I admire as the leader. And I would have to say it's Gloria Steinem because um, she was at the forefront of the women's movement when it was kind of a quiet movement. And, you know, she developed um, Ms. Magazine and she also became a speaker, but she's the kind of leader who reached out to people. She was very facilitative and she reached out to people to get their ideas, their input. You know, it was, again, it was from the ground up. So that's, those are the people I admire most. Wow, really, very good names actually. So thank you so much for sharing and sharing your leadership style as so what kind of book is gonna so thank you and it was really very pleasure and honor for me to listen to you actually and learn more about this creative field and how much hard work is involved into it so thank you so much for being the guest for Soli saturday my pleasure my pleasure um lisha i really um, appreciate this opportunity and thank you for having me on Soli saturday uh, thank you thank you again Okay, bye. All right, so this is all about Carol and the way she's managing to lead her area of expertise. Before we close our today's episode, we have a closure quote from D.L. Sayers, which says, the vital power of an imaginative work demands a diversity within its unity. And the stronger the diversity, the more massive the unity. So on that quote, we are closing today's episode. See you guys in the next episode. Until we meet, happy leading. Let's lead together. Stay safe. Bye for now.